Makers of Sport Podcast, episode 97 with Chris Doe. Welcome to episode 97 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. My guest today breaks the pattern of my traditional guests as he doesn't actually work in sports directly. However, his company, Blind, a brand strategy and motion design studio, works with brands in both sports and entertainment. Some of those brands are Microsoft Xbox, MLB Networks, ESPN, Russell Athletic, Riot Games, and many, many more high-value brands. He's an adjunct professor at the renowned art school, Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, and he is disrupting design education through his digital platform, The Future, an online platform with over 9.5 million views on YouTube alone teaching fundamental design skills such as typography and composition, but also soft skills such as strategy, business development, and sales. Those that listen to Makers of Sport do know that I have an affinity for things like strategy and business when it comes to creativity, and this guy is an expert in those disciplines. Therefore, without further ado, I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Chris Doe. What's up, Chris? How's it going? What a warm introduction. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say one thing. I do want to say one thing. Yeah. It's interesting how you say he's not really into sports. And then I just wrote down this note. Hey, man, I'm in the full contact sport of business hand-to-hand combat. Oh, that's beautiful, man. There's a book. Uh, Mark Cuban wrote a book called The Sport of Business. So it, mm. it, it works out well. All right. Um, so I, I'd like to, this point of the podcast, I'd like to give guests an opportunity to kind of tell a bit of their own story. Uh, I think a lot of us probably know you as Chris Doe from The Future and Blind, but who is Chris Doe the person? Can you tell us a little bit about your youth and how you got into creativity and sort of your path to college. Okay, so I, I have to say that I'm probably the antithesis of what you would think of as a sports person because I grew up really kind of an introverted, very shy nerd. I love comic books, skateboarding, video games, Dungeons and Dragons. I'm gonna lay it out there. Now I would not have admitted that while growing <laughs> up because that would get you thrown into the dumpster. But that's kind of my world. I love to sketch and draw. And this is something that I did, and it seemed like for a very long time, I was the only person who didn't know that this was something I was supposed to do. Because for a long time, I thought, I'm going to go into business, into uh, finance marketing, or I'm sorry, uh, into finances, or, or something in the business space, accounting even, and denying myself the pursuit of something I truly love. But there are luckily enough people around me, like my mom, my brother, some teachers, and some mentors along the way who kept encouraging me gently to pursue design and creativity. So it wasn't until I was in high school, senior year, I get a job at a silk screening shop. And and it's funny how paths lead you there, even though you're kind of resisting it the entire time, because people saw that I drew and I had some kind of spark of creativity. So I got introduced to the business owner and he hired me to do freelance illustration work which I wasn't trained for nor ready to do, but I jumped in there like many things in my life. You got to start before you're ready. And that 
that one decision to take that freelance gig, inking over his drawings, really led me to this world of design, meeting professional designers, and then it, having that thought as an inception in my brain that this is something I could do as a profession. That's very cool, man. So what about, uh, you, you, I understand you went to school at, at Art Center, right? So how, how, did, uh, how did you end up there? I went to Art Center because uh, my, my boss, Brad, uh, at the silk screening shop, he would always ask me, what are you going to do after school? And I would always tell him, I don't know, I don't know. Until I thought, oh, you know what? I actually want to do graphic design. This sounds like a really cool thing to do. So then he told me, you need to go to Art Center. It's in LA. It's a perfect place for you. There's cocky bastards there just like you going to get along with them. <laughs> and that's all I really knew about this school, to be honest, that it was called Art Center and it was in Los Angeles. So kind of being a very naive person, and this is pre-internet, right? So there's, there's no information. I'm not looking up anything. I just tell my mom, mom, I, I want to go to Art Center after school. So she asks all her professional colleagues, and then it, it gets back to her pretty quick that it is an amazing school, and it's super expensive. I remember my dad telling me at that time, the tuition to go to Art Center was the same as it is to go to Stanford. Now, wow. he, was saying not, he was saying that not as a point of honor. He was saying that you're going to go to art school when you should have gone to Stanford right. instead. <laughs> Yeah. So that was like a, dis- a big disappointment for him. Yeah, it almost seems like a lot of creatives kind of run into that with their parents um, at some point in their journey where it's like, what are you, you going to do with that? Because <laughs> they, they don't understand right. that. And, and honestly, I think that our generation, because I know that you have, you have kids. Uh, yep. I'm a dad, I have kids, and I'm very passionate about sort of pushing a creative legacy. And, and it seems like you are as well, because I notice your sons come and use your computers at work and, and that type of thing. But That's our right. generation is going to be different because I think that the... Uh, the economies now are sort of built off of creative individuals doing, doing creative things. I think so. And it's very different because at the rate in which we're all learning and sharing, which is incredible, regardless of what field you're in, but there seems to be a plethora of content to help young people learn about design in all aspects, from hand lettering to typography, graphic design principles, how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. I would have killed for these kind of resources. So now it's all available. And so many young people, my, I'm just using my son as an example here, they see these other people on, on YouTube doing shows that have millions of views and that's their entire life. It's a creative business. So I think the business of creativity is better than it's ever been. It's healthier than it's ever been. Right, I agree. And, and I'm very fascinated with these kids. I, you know, my sons, they, they consume so much content on YouTube and you just see these new things popping up. One thing they're really into right now are these guys that make these box forts. And mm. it's th- these guys, they're almost like engineers. It's these two, and, and I would say these guys are probably, I don't know, mid 20s to upper 20s, maybe early 30s, I don't know. But they make these forts out of cardboard boxes. And and it's they're so well done. Like one time they built a, a bridge across a pool and both of them walked across the pool on wow. cardboard boxes and made with tape. And so it's amazing. So I'm sitting here watching this and I'm like, well, these kids are, they're consuming things, but at the same time, like this is actually really educational because this looks mm-hmm. fun, but there's a, a very engineering type mindset to these right. guys. And so I tell my son, I'm like, all right, now you've, you've done enough consuming. Now it's time to make something, right? Like I don't care if yes. it's drawing, I don't care what it is, but it's, it's, I would imagine it's also easy for this generation to get caught up into only consuming. So, mm-hmm. So I, I, I watched a, uh, I think, I can't remember if I listened to a podcast or, or a video or something, but I, I know that when you were at Art Center, 
you studied graphic design. So how did you end up, and obviously your studio is, is very well known for motion design, and, and that's a topic that you speak on a lot now. So how did you end up moving towards motion design? This is the, the kind of the weird path, the, the path I had not intended to go down, but it led to some pretty amazing things because I went down that path. So the, the thing about going to school is I really applied myself to learn as much as possible, and I wasn't going to just sit there and let the school dictate what I could learn. So I got a lot of my general education out of the way, so I had more room for electives. So I started to take 3D modeling, 3D animation, and in my very last semester at Art Center, there was a class that opened up, and somebody told me, you know, you should check this out since you're doing animation work. And it was the, it was the first time, I think, it, or maybe the second time, that After Effects was being taught at Art Center. So I took that class and it really just, my mind exploded because prior to that, I was working on SGI boxes, silicon graphics boxes that were probably $40,000 a piece with software that was another $15,000, basically out of reach, out of any mere mortal. And to do something in Power Animator made by Alias, it would take a lot of effort, energy and rendering time and processing. And then when I got into 2D animation in After Effects, the results were immediate you would hit preview and it would start to churn and then you would see what you did. And that really excited me. So I get out of school. I was thinking at that point in time that I was supposed to get into editorial design, basically designing magazines and corporate identity. I decided, you know what, I don't want to do this. I really want to pursue motion, even though I just got a little taste. It was just an appetizer. So I spent the rest of the time after school teaching myself sequential design animation, storytelling, and it was a whole new world and it opened up so many doors for me. That's cool, man. And you know, honestly, I think I'd like to actually discuss education in general because I know that you have some very interesting uh, and sometimes controversial thoughts on that. And honestly, my thoughts actually align with that. But mm. uh, you and, and I listened to a podcast with uh, yourself and Grayscale Gorilla. It's funny, I don't do any motion, but I listen to all these <laughs> motion guys. <laughs> and honestly, it's just because like, I think uh, as a creative person, uh, you sort of find these patterns and things mm-hmm. and, and you start to see like all these things align. I think I actually sent you a tweet uh, that was like, that was something to the effect of, uh, you like when you and and uh, Nick from Grayscale Gorilla connected, it, it it was like, dude, this this makes so much sense. Like you mm. should have connected a long time ago. But um, so tell me your thoughts about education. I mean, we, we I think we live in a time where you know you're you're a you're a uh, an adjunct professor right at a school. Yep. So we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, essentially what what is probably a bureaucratic place where curriculum takes forever to change. Uh, but we're at a time in society where technology changes so fast that that you, I believe you almost have to, if you're going to work in the creative disciplines or even just in tech in general, you almost have to pursue your own education, even if you, uh, if you have the, the money or scholarships or whatever to go to school. Yep. So this is uh, could be a deep and, and dark rabbit hole that you and I go down, Adam. So <laughs> let, let's see. I, I I'll tell you when it gets too dark, you pull me out of the hole. Okay, <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. <laughs> I, I'm charged on the subject of education. I do want to say a couple of things. I've taught at Art Center and a couple other universities or private art schools like Otis for a number of years. I don't teach there currently, but I taught there for over 15 years. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. Having said that. It is bureaucratic, but it's it's actually a lot faster moving than, say, a traditional university. They can make changes pretty quickly because they hire instructors, and they do give them a lot of latitude as to what they want to teach. But that initiative has to come from the department chair or the director of that department. 
So if they see a need for a user experience design and there isn't one, they can actually create a class that's kind of outside of the normal track and the curriculum mm-hmm. that they can explore and see what the interest level is and what the students get out of it. And then they'll build around that. So there's a lot of flexibility. I mean, they, they do have to follow a set of criteria to be able to grade students and to make sure one degree equals another degree. But outside of that, the machine is relatively slow. If you're looking at the bigger, if you're looking at the, the macro versus the micro, it is slow. But here's my thing about education. You're right in that the world is changing really fast. It, and it almost doesn't matter how agile the, the university or college is, there is almost no way for them to keep up. Because the only way you could do that is to have people who are in the industry making those changes, stop their day job, and then come in and develop curriculum around what they're doing while they're doing it. I don't know very many people who would want to do that, who have the time or the desire to do it. That's the problem. But here's the thing. I want to be a force for good. I want to be the person who's helping to drive a new era in education. I think our education isn't broken. It's just massively outdated. It's outdated in the way we teach, the subjects that we teach, and how we teach and how we learn. That's the real problem right there. First of all, if you're living in America, it should be your right, not a privilege to go to university. That should just be part of you being a United States citizen. That's a big problem for me because I believe education is the great equalizer to lift up all people in all societies. And it should not be the right, or I'm sorry, it should not be the privilege the privilege of a few that can afford the very best. There is no coincidence that people that get into the best universities also go to the best um, high schools or the best elementary schools, the best private preschools. Right. It just happens that way. And so they have the best tutors and the best teachers teaching them. So there's a problem there in terms of the economics around education. I, be, I believe that education and healthcare should just be your God-given right as a U.S. citizen, that your taxes should go to pay for that versus some other things. So we're, we're kind of at a point where, um, you know, kids, so I'm a, I guess I'm really more like of, of, a, of a zenial, I think I heard it called. I'm sort of like on the cusp of millennial born in 1983 I, where I could sort of see both both sides of the, of the fence. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we're kind of at a path where my generation has gone to school and gotten so in debt, right? Where, yes. uh, and, and, and honestly, like, so I went to a school called Eastern Kentucky University. It was a small school um, in Kentucky. And, and basically our parents were sort of pushing, like, you need to just go to school. You need to go to school, get a degree. It's going to mean something. But what it seems like has happened is that just getting a bachelor's degree anymore doesn't actually mean anything because it's become so saturated, right? And so, um, you know, if you have a friend, I have a, uh, I have a friend that I've debated with before that went and got an MBA at, like, uh, the University of Kentucky. And so uh, my sort of thinking is that, well, if you don't go get an MBA from a place like an Ivy League school or Stanford, then it really doesn't matter. You should have just started a business, right? Because right. you would have learned a lot of the same things. And basically all you'd have is this this huge debt where you just can attach MBA to your name, but it was kind of like, but the market is just so saturated, right? Right. There's a lot of issues there. One is that the previous metric or the unit of measure as to how good or how smart or how driven you were was a piece of paper. And the piece of paper, depending on what says what it says at the top, what university or what private school you went to, said a lot about who you were because there was no other real standard metric to measure the value of the human being. Now, it's different when you get into design because I can look at your portfolio. If you're a composer, I can listen to songs that you scored. 
if you're a theater person, I can look at your performance. But when it comes to the normal world, like English, mathematics, physics, those kinds of things, it matters very much the pedigree in which where you got your education from. It's a standard. But the problem is also that because society is changing so fast, like look at what's, what legal Zoom has done to attorneys. It's made the legal process very accessible. It's leveraged software to connect buyers and sellers together. It, it therefore drives the market down. And now people who graduate, who have gone through a lot of years of schooling, who have passed the bar, have a hard time finding a decent job as an attorney. I'll give you an example. I have a cousin. She graduated. She got her law degree after many years of schooling. And I got to tell, tell you that I made more money than her just two years out of school as a graphic designer than she is making as an attorney today. Wow. That's the stat, sad state of affairs. Now, it's happening everywhere. And if we're talking about the change of the times, we live in the 21st century. It's called the information economy or the knowledge economy. And what you have to do is you have to be the person who's leading new ideas and not just enforcing the old ideas. That's where all the wealth is going to be. Right. And here's something I find fascinating too, is that I'll, I'll just, I'll tell a little bit of my own story. I mean, when I went to school, I went to school for graphic design. Um, in, in high school, you know, I was all A's and B's, uh, sort of uh, straight edge kind of student. Uh, got to school and decided that I only really liked my art classes. So my other classes, <laughs> I, I was at a, just a general university. Looking back, I probably should have went to an art school, but um, I didn't go to my other classes. Um, I didn't care as much about them. And so my GPA ended up suffering because of it. Now my art school, actual art department GPA was good, but the other part where it offsets, you know, it ended up being like a, I think it was like a two seven or something like that. Right. Mm, so mm-hmm. now here I am. Um, 12, I guess, yeah, 2005. So yeah, um, we're, we're this far away, right? Um, but if I decided to go back to a grad school, how much of my GPA that was from a completely different kid, right? I'm like 10 plus years older, um, more mature, more passionate about what I do. How, how does that affect being able to get into places like grad schools, right? In terms of like measuring that criteria when you're looking at something that happened 10 years ago. Right. And that's, well, first of all, I mean, thanks, thanks for sharing the story. So you've been thinking about possibly going to grad school? Mm. No, I mean, it's something that I've, I've. It's like you flirt with that. Yeah, idea yeah, from yeah. Time you flirt time. with the idea, yeah. right? And you see things <laughs> and you're like, and honestly, a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, when you get deep into this industry and you start seeing some of these people that have these fantastic um backgrounds in terms of their schooling and right. uh, they they end up at places like Apple and all these places and and it's it, I'm not saying that because you didn't go because there are obviously people that didn't even go to school at all that end up at places like that as well because they just worked hard right. but there's almost like a a perception involved right so for me it was like well maybe I should go back and get a degree from like I don't know an art school just to have it um, but here's the thing I also have been working for myself for uh, 11 years right so it's almost like what's the point at the same time <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would mm-hmm. basically just be for almost like a resume type thing. Uh, and I've also become very good at uh, just sort of building my own education. I mean, just for example, this podcast, right? I mean, I, I knew nothing about podcasting uh, download. You know, we already had Adobe audition because of doing uh, uh, because of Adobe creative cloud. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, you've been listening to podcasts for 10 years. It's like, well, let's give it a shot, you know? And then lo and behold, you start to learn and, and, uh, and you kind of put together your own path, which is, uh, you know, I believe that you're 
just watch it, consuming your content. It seems like you're very much that way as well. I mean, I sit here and watch your, your videos get better and better. And then you've got like, all of a sudden one day you've got like sound panels in the background. (laughs) 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 So I'm like, so I'm noticing these things. Right. Right. Um, But, but that's, that would just be uh, going back to the grad school thing. That would be the thing that it would just be a resume thing for me, honestly. But there's something I do want to talk about in terms of just breaking sort of uh, cultural norms, I guess, in terms of school. Uh, I, I did notice there was a, there was a, uh, a talk or a panel that you were on at one point and there were a couple of professors from the art school and you guys were talking about how if a student uh, had a project and then that student actually say they outsourced part of the project to an illustrator. Oh yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I found Mm -hmm. that extremely fascinating because, um, you know, some, some professors are like, no, no, this is your project. You should be doing it. But at the same time, it's like, but wait a second, there's all this whole art director, creative director mentality where you're trying to piece together the proper people for this job and sort of create this strategy. And I think this will lead us into a business conversation, but can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Let me give you the setup. When you say a couple of people, I mean, it was all the instructors in the room, then they were upset. So I'm sitting there at a staff meeting, okay, mandatory faculty meeting, and there must be 30, 35 people, 35 instructors, my colleagues, and some of them were my former instructors. And towards the end of the meeting, a person brings up, like, I can't believe how things have changed here, how there's a, a giant pa- disparity between people that are students that are just barely affording school and then the rich kids. And so they go on to tell that this kid must be so rich, he hired another student to do his work for him. And then everybody is like, had this look of shock and horror on their face. Like, what? I can't yeah. believe it. And they're telling this story. And then, the, and then the teacher was saying, like, he went from being okay to being really good, really fast. And that's always a sign to teachers that something is amiss. And I was sitting there thinking, and I was just getting really angry as they're telling more and more of this story. I was like, has anybody stepped back to look at the situation as to what this person's skill is versus what they want him to be? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know anything about this person. I don't know if he's young, if he's old, if he's rich or poor. But I was thinking, this guy seems to exhibit skill sets of a leader, Maybe he's an entrepreneur. Maybe he's an art director, creative director type. Because those of us know that when you hire a creative person, great results are not guaranteed. So to be able to direct somebody towards a brief, to get them to do it on time and to do it for whatever you can afford, that's a skill. And I was making an argument for that. So I invited these two professors my colleagues that I respect very much, Allison Goodman and Protrula Vrantaikas, to come and have a debate with me about this. So they, they weren't really ready for my position on this. I was just telling them, I'm really fired up. I'm kind of angry about this. I want to talk about it. And so that's where the debate came. And I was thinking, I, you know, something I didn't get to say earlier about my, my past is I've been a person who's been, who has been ostracized by my community for a very long time. So I have a sensitive spot. I was bullied by all kinds of people. Everywhere I went, I would get into fistfights with people like three times my size and this is the way it was going to be. Now, I'm not telling you I got into those fights because I knew I could win. I got into those fights because I was given no choice. I was either going to stand up to them or get pummeled by them every single day. So I have this kind of like big brother kind of mentality when I see somebody getting picked on by lots of people and they don't understand. I try to have some empathy for this person and say, what is the redeeming value of this person? What are they doing? Is there something positive there? And a lot of people want to judge this person's intent, that they're lazy, that they're trying to take shortcuts in life. 
that don't really want to learn. And I'm a big believer, and Gary Vaynerchuk says this all the time, which is like triple down on your strengths. So here we have a committee of people and probably his classmates looking at him and saying, you're not like us, you're not like us, be like us. I'm the one there sitting saying, I don't know the intent in this person's heart. I don't know if it's to be lazy. I don't know if it's to abuse his financial power. All I could see was the results of which is he got a project on the right path and he figured a way out and he was resourceful. As long as he disclosed that he didn't do it, there is no form of plagiarism as, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And we'll, we'll often overlook, like this is how businesses get things done. Otherwise, every business in America would be a solopreneur. Well, how oh, do right. they, yeah, they do this, right? And, and just think about this for a second. And I, I've used this argument recently. I say, think about your favorite restaurant run by a celebrity chef. Do you honestly think that chef is back there cooking, is on the line? Do you think they're expediting the order? Chances are they have 14, 15 restaurants that they're running right now. And they have a whole management system built around creating something in their style so that you, the consumer, could not tell the difference between when they were cooking on the line and when somebody else, an assistant, a sous chef, is making the food. Right. So we don't have a problem with that. Nobody ever bats an eyelash. Actually, we'll go out to the store and buy a bottle of their salad dressing (laughs) (laughs) that we know they didn't make because it was made in a factory. Right. We know that. We have no problem with that. And to me, cooking is creative. Like you throw a bunch of ingredients at me, I don't know what to do with it. And there's artistry in the way that they combine ingredients to create unexpected flavors. And it looks visual. I mean, it could might as well be a painting, some of the way some of the ways these guys present their their plates, right? Mm -hmm. Yet so when we get into the design world, we have a big problem with that. That now the work is not authentic, they're not being genuine. And where's the authorship on all this stuff? So designer as maker is what's celebrated in school, not designer as entrepreneur, designer as business problem solver. Right. That's the thing that I was rallying for. And it got really heated online. I mean, people are coming after me at that point because I made this comment, right? Because I said, to me, when you're in the mechanics, when you have your hands in the work, it's all production. And I make no distinction between doing that Versus becoming like a bricklayer. Right. I'm not dismissing bricklaying because there's artistry involved in that as well. I'm saying to me, it's all the same. Why do we elevate what our craft is doing versus somebody else who's an artisan? What's the difference? If you throw pots, if you do, if you make tile, whatever it is, it's all art and it's all production and it's all bricklaying to me. Right. And are, are you familiar with, uh, with the book called uh, The E-Myth? Uh, no, they, no. There was another one called The E-Myth Revisited. I think you would really like mm-hmm. this book. I'm actually doing the audio book right now. Yeah. Um, it talks about businesses and entrepreneurship and it talks about mm-hmm. scaling them. So it talks about sort of these different stages of business where when you start out, it's just you. Or first you're at a job, right? right. And then you're like, I, you know what? I'm, I'm doing this thing that I really enjoy. Why am I doing this for another person? So then you decide yep. to break it on your own and you're doing it for yourself and then you start to get busy and then you're like, I need help. So then you sort of reach this adolescent stage and then you bring on somebody to help you. But then you sort of let them kind of, you don't actually know how to manage somebody. So you're, you know, like a client comes and they're, they're mad because something wasn't up, up to par with how mm-hmm. you did it, but you weren't even aware because you were now off into doing something else. Uh, and it's how entrepreneurs kind of, or business owners should have like these four different personalities. I haven't reached all of them yet, but there's essentially like 
the, the entrepreneur. So this person's always sort of creating new ideas and how do we do these things? And there's got to be the manager, which is the person that kind of manages the business and stays in touch with what's actually happening in their day to day so that it just doesn't turn into something that they didn't think that it was. Right. Um, but, but that said, um, I, I, I wanted to throw that recommendation out cause I thought you would like it. But that said, I think that creatives, um, for some reason we tend to have this, um, uh, there's like a sexiness almost to just being broke, right? Or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm, oh, it's mm-hmm. just about the art, um, business, like your sellout, whatever, and all this stuff. But if you look at people like, um, I mean, Steve Jobs, right? Like Steve Jobs was essentially a designer, right? And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they built this, built this uh, even Phil Knight from Nike, right? Mm-hmm. And these types of people. Um, so have you, there's another book I want to talk about. Have you, have you heard, uh, and I'm kind of just off the rails here, so you'll just have to apologize, <laughs> I'll, I'll apologize <laughs> ahead of time. But yeah. um, there's a book called Real Artists Don't Starve. Have you heard of this one? No, but that sounds like a great title. So this book is written by a guy named Jeff Goins, and I'll, I'll forward you the, uh, a link to it. But this book talks about uh, myths involved with people like, say, Michelangelo, right? And so mm-hmm. Michelangelo was actually um, not poor at all. He was actually mm-hmm. very wealthy. But mm-hmm. somehow this sort of rumor starts, and then he wrote, I guess he wrote this letter towards the end of his life about how art you know, made him poor and all this stuff. But it was actually a complete lie because apparently if you tour... Uh, you know, where he lived, he had like four different houses and, and even just from the maker mentality, like you were discussing, I mean, he alone did not create all of this art, right? Like he managed Mm -hmm. a lot of it. He hired people, uh, but it was sort of his brand. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So there's a, there's this uh, unhealthy relationship with suffering and creativity that you need to suffer that you need to pay your dues, that you need to come up the hard way because a lot of people were rallying against this idea that this kid who was rich and we resent him for that, I don't resent him for being rich or poor, he, he, he is who he is, and that he was taking some shortcut and they were just really messed up. And you see this too. You see this happen a lot in sports since you have a sports community, right? Uh, recently, there was a fight between um, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather how a lot of people in the community in both sports were saying this is wrong. He needs to fight, fight professional fights before. And there's this whole idea that you got to do the dirty work. You got to pay your dues. And I'm really thinking that that's an old antiquated idea. Why is this fight happening? The fight is happening is because these are the two biggest straws and this is where they can make the most amount of money. Right, right. He's positioned himself. This is a game of positioning now and he's marketed himself in such that there are plenty of people who have now some doubt if Floyd Mayweather can beat him or not. And then the fans come in and he's bringing his whole Irish MMA community into boxing, breathing some life into it. And it became a gigantic box office thing. Right. It was enormous. So and it's just two massive brands going against each two other. Massive and brands the guys going against are not, it's not beneath them that they're not intelligent enough to know that, hey, we're, let's go. Even after the fight, they're goofing off like, hey, like, let's go have a beer, right? Because we just made all this money. <laughs> Yeah, they have to sell the fight. So I, I think to a lot of people, they want to see a person go and fight 12, 15 times, have their brain rattled, have their faces destroyed. Then they say, okay, now you're worthy of this thing. And there's a lot of value placed on that kind of work. But I look at it, it's like we all move at different speeds. I respect the people who are grinders. I'm a grinder myself. But then I also respect people who can talk their way into something and get what's, what's due to them. And that's up to each person. I'm not resentful of that. So this art director kid 
who I have no idea what happened to this kid, right? It's just like kind of a case study, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He may have figured out I'm much better at figuring out what the client brief is, This in this case, an assignment, and trying to find the right talent to help me execute my vision. What is wrong with that? That took me years to learn. If you learn how to do that while in school, hats off to him. Yeah, there's almost like a pride factor associated because I, I even, even in my uh, early years, I remember thinking I can't actually, if I'm designing a, a user interface or whatever, it's like I can't use any icons anybody else designed. I have to do everything 100% myself, right? Yep. Because if I don't, yep, yep. there's almost like this weird sense of ego or, or ownership that you feel like you, uh, you, you didn't do it, right? It's a weird, it's like a paralyzing thing almost. Yes, and that was a lesson I learned as a creative. So many years ago when I was first starting out, I was working on some storyboards and it took me forever because I was at the same mentality. I got to take the photograph for the texture. I got to find all the assets and build everything from scratch. So while I toiled away on one idea, my colleague had pumped out eight ideas, like fully storyboarded. And I looked at them and they were gorgeous. It wasn't like they were ugly. And I asked him, how did you do this, man? How did you go so fast? And he said, well, I pulled this clip from this movie. I cut this out from that background. I just put all these things together. And I remember feeling, you cheater. Yeah, <laughs> I made everything. You little rat. I can't believe that's what you did. But then I walked away and saw that his ideas were moving forward. And I only came up with one in the time that he had. We had the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. I'm exaggerating a little bit. It wasn't quite eight ideas, but it, was, it felt like eight times as much work. And then I went away and I thought to myself, what is the price of the way that I work? My mentality that I must make everything myself. What is the price of originality? He's moving on. He's exploring way more ideas than I have. And we always say to our, our students and as we teach, concept is king. Well, he came up with eight concepts. I came up with one. And somewhere in the third or fourth concept, I think he had a real breakthrough while I was still stuck on the first one. So I think there's way too much that's put on this thing that you have to make everything yourself. That is one way to work, and I do respect that, but I don't think that is for everybody. Right. No, I agree with that. I think that, um, and, and honestly, it's it's probably good for people like that are that are better at, say, being a, a creative director or art director to find the people that are really good at the one thing, and they only want to do the one thing, right? So if they're just a, yep. a, an icon illustrator or whatever, it's you want to hire that person because they're going to, do that really well and you don't ever almost really have as an entrepreneur from an entrepreneurial perspective you really don't have to worry about them essentially rising up i guess and and being like i want to try to take all the clients and start a business and whatever because they it's 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 not for everybody i guess is what mm-hmm. i'm saying um mm-hmm. which that's something that i've learned to reconcile over time too i used to push people a lot on this thing to uh, even on this podcast to um because my passion is is for design um, and entrepreneurship, but really where this sort of moves over into the sports realm is because of people like Blair Enns, who I know that you're familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, and you wrote a, the forward in his his new book, which I haven't read yet, but um, or wrote a, a, a quote for him on it, but uh, to kind of s- uh, select a niche, right? Or like a category, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm passionate about sport. And so for me, I am in the middle of nowhere, right? Like I actually mm-hmm. live on like four acres. There's like cows, back here I can see through my window um, mm-hmm. but I knew that in order for me to be able to build a client base that is I want to travel right and so I'm not in a position to move because of family scenarios but 
I knew that in order for me to build a client base that was not going to be sort of location specific, then I was going to have to find something that was either get really good at one thing, like say icons or, or do one sort of sector. And that's sort of, I chose the sector because I have a variety of creative interests. Mm-hmm. Adam, I, I get this feeling that like you should have been a designer. And it's, first of all, I do want to say something. It's never too late to be one. Oh, no, I am a designer. I mean, I have a, oh, BF, yeah, I have a BFA in design. Like, actually, that's the way that I actually make money is design. Like, I have a studio. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, uh, so that's what I do day to day. I started this business, or I started this uh, podcast as a, honestly because I was looking for this podcast. Um, oh, okay. I, I, you know, I wanted something. You know, we sort of follow people in my world. Really follow sports branding, uh, uniform design, sneaker mm-hmm. design. I'm really passionate about just sort of the culture of sport more so than actually sport itself. I, see. I guess. Um, so I really follow things like even just uh, street fashion, right? Or like following right. high snobiety or hype beast or whatever, and, and paying right, right. attention to what's happening in those spaces because I think that sport affects culture in a huge mm-hmm. way. Even mm-hmm. people that say they don't like sport in some way, it's almost like they are affected by it because if you're really into streetwear, streetwear really almost like originated from sport in a, in a, in a weird way, right? Because of things seen on a basketball court or basketball culture or whatever. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of how, how this whole thing came about. But just to, just to change the path here a little bit, um, you know, we talk about designers and and this sort of sense of this ego involved in terms of they don't want to outsource anything because they feel like they want to make everything. Uh, but I think in order to scale a business, and and even this book, The E-Myth, discusses this, you know, you have to bring on other people, right? Like you were mentioning it earlier with cooks and chefs and, and that type of thing. You can't scale a, a business like that if it's just going to be you forever. So what do you think it is about designers and creative people that that one are, are holding them back from sort of taking that step, but also why are they so afraid to discuss things like financials and, and, and be comfortable talking about money and understanding that even negotiating is not like a negative thing. It's not like a, somebody trying to get you. Ooh, okay. (laughs) The psychology of the creative person and as it relates to money business and all this kind of stuff. Here's what I think. I think a lot of people get into the creative space and it doesn't really matter how you define creative. It could be an architect, photographer, or, or a graphic designer. They get into it because A, they're uncomfortable talking to people and I was one of those people. So we're horribly introverted. So we'd rather just work with machines. We like expressing ourselves we, via the tools that we have, you, working with our hands and craftsmanship and putting in that kind of work. And so, so much of our identity is tied to that. So let's talk about a couple of the pain points now. When it comes to talking to clients, we have a hard time associating a value to the work that we do because we find it to be pleasurable. And there's a sense of guilt that comes over us that, gosh, how do I charge for something that I enjoy so much? And then without even the client prompting us to, we start to negotiate against ourselves. We start to say, is it worth it? Gosh, this is so easy. It's almost like breathing for me. So, uh, I mean, how much can I really charge for something like this? Oh, I can't charge 500. That's just too much. Because they start looking at things that they could buy for $500 mm-hmm. and think that's worth more than what it is that I'm doing. So it becomes a very self-centered point of view. My guilt over doing the things that I love. My fear that the value that I'm creating isn't equal to the other thing. My whole thing is if you want more self-confidence, be less self-conscious. 
Stop thinking so much about you and your ego. Think about it from the other side of the table. Look at this. If a potential, a prospect comes to you and asks you for, for help, they already see value in the work that they do. Because unbeknownst to you, people do not like to waste time. If they don't see something in you in the work that you've done or the reputation you've created, they won't even come and talk to you. So when I, one, one thing I want you to think about is when the client calls, you are already qualified. Stop trying to prove yourself. You already qualify because people don't like to waste their time. So stop doing that. Next, be comfortable talking about money and get over this idea that you cheapen the process and that if you get paid too much money, that you feel bad, that you feel like you're a scam artist. It's not about how much value you assign to it. It's how much value your client or prospect assigns to it. So this concept of value-based pricing, it wrecks people's minds. And so they say it's dishonest. If I put in the same amount of work from one client to the next, you're saying to me, Chris, that I could charge and should charge a different amount of money. That seems like you're a crook. You're a charlatan. BS. Or like, just raise your mm-hmm. rates for both. I said, no, you don't understand. And they say, well, You mean, so if I'm a rich person, I'm going to pay more? I said, it's not about your wealth. It's about the value that this thing has for you. Let me, let me give you an example. If I create a mark and it's for a restaurant, a mom and pop kind of restaurant, they put that mark on their window, their door, on the menus and all that kind of stuff. And their food is amazing. One day they stop printing the mark and it gets scratched off the window and the door. Do patrons continue to go? Yes, they do, because not, they're not there to eat your logo. They're there to eat the food, to meet the people, because it has great ambience and there's great customer service, and the quality is amazing, and the value they see in that. So you can only charge so much for that mark, because fundamentally, it's going to have very little impact on the owner's business. Now, take that same amount of work, that mark becomes a sticker for a company, and then they sell that sticker for $3 a pop. And everything that has that mark becomes a part of their brand. So if that mark is on a lunchbox, the lunchbox is now worth two or three times as much. If they put it on a, on a, a, a cup or a thermos or a shirt, a sweater, a cap, like in sports marketing, that becomes valuable because a new era cap that's unbranded is only worth the wholesale price. You throw any sports franchise logo on there, now that becomes more valuable. Right. So the same amount of work has different value to different people. Sometimes it's real value, like it's going to increase their business. And sometimes it's just about risk mitigation. That if they screw up the mark, they have a giant PR problem, that they're going to lose business, that they're going to have to reprint things, and it's going to cost them money to do that. And you need to understand that fundamentally, the value is in the eye of the beholder, and you are not the beholder. So go ahead and ask them. How much money do you have prepared for this? Why do you want to do this? What is it worth to you if you get it right? What does it cost you if you get it wrong? That's what I need to know. And then price accordingly. That's good, man. And I think, honestly, this brings up a a conversation about time in general. Um, I think I heard uh, Tim Ferriss, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He said uh, something to the effect, time is our most non-renew- our most valuable non-renewable resource. And yes. actually one of your conversations on the future 
that I really enjoyed was with uh, Matthias Omatola. Was that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. At Major VFX. And you guys were discussing how valuable time is and investing time intelligently as a creative. You actually stated, quote, uh, that time is currency. Oh and, yeah, you and, got a good memory. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I, you know, I, I research a lot for these shows and yes, write down do. notes and things. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I love that quote, and and so I'm curious if you could sort of elaborate on time as currency and how important time is, and then I have some examples of my own that I'd like to kind of bring up as well. Yeah, I don't think this is a new concept. We all have different ways of saying it. I don't think Tim Ferriss or myself has a lock hold on this concept. If you think about it, when you were born, you were already set to expire. We just don't know our expiration date. You have a finite amount of time on this earth before you're six feet under. And no amount of money can change that. When it's your time, it is your time. Your body will fall apart. And so you need to recognize that. Steve Jobs, in his commencement speech, I think at Stanford, had said something like, death is the greatest teacher. Because it'll teach you not to take today for granted. Right. The, the greatest inventor. So think about that for a second. So a lot of times what we do is we exchange our time for something. And what we don't do is we don't put a lot of value on our time. We think, what else am I going to be doing? I got nothing else to do. So we neglect our children. We neglect our partners. We neglect working on our business or getting out there into the social space and meeting real people, working on our brand, et cetera. So we so readily exchange our time for something else. So you must be thinking, what is so valuable to creatives that they would be so willing to give up their time? And it's sad. But here it comes. What they're exchanging their time for is to be validated by others. Yes. And that's a crazy concept. Think about it. Your emotional well-being and including your physical health is in the hands of a complete stranger who A, may be underqualified to even validate you, who might just be of the wrong temperament, and you're going to give them the controls to your mental well-being? I barely give it to the people that I love and care about. (laughs) Well, and I think that that's why depression and anxiety run so deep throughout creative disciplines, not just design, but music, uh, film, everything, right? And and, and now even more so it's amplified because we're trying to get more likes, (laughs) get the heart, heart button clicked. Right. And so here's the other part of the problem is that as makers, as craftspeople, we only see value when we're actually producing something. Like if I'm on the box, if I turn that into something that I can then share, that's tangible. We don't put any value into the thinking. And this is why, again, hourly-based pricing is horrible. It punishes experience and efficiency. So I'm, I've been working now for over 22 years. I've got all this knowledge and experience that I've carried around with me and the training that happened before that, the four years I went to school and the year that I worked at the silk screening shop. So when I enter into a conversation and I solve a problem with words out of my mouth, most creatives would say, well, that was that. I'm just happy that the clients thought I had some good ideas. I have friends that literally say this. They listen to me, Chris. I'm like, boy, are you in need of validation all the time? Don't you think what you're saying is valuable? Well, I didn't make anything. Well, you made that person's business better. So we have to get over this idea and change that equation to thinking versus making and assigning value into the thinking part. And that's a very uncomfortable thing for creatives to hear. Right. Because how do you charge for that? Well, again, I submit to your honor 
this exhibit, exhibit A, is what's it worth to that person? And what you need to do is you need to be able to leverage this. So there's this new thing that I've been uh, quoting from Jim Rohn, his book, Seven Strategies for Wealth and Happiness, is that wealth is your ability to convert knowledge and experience into currency and equity. That's Or capital and equity. So you have all these ideas in your head and they're valuable to you, but to nobody else. Until you put it out there in some kind of form, it's not worth anything. So when we design a mark for somebody, we capture our knowledge and experience in that mark. So the more knowledge and experience you have, theoretically, that mark is worth more. But then as soon as you stop working, the value is gone again. So you're waiting between the next time that that happens. But somebody like you, Adam, who's converting your knowledge and your experience into a podcast, everybody that listens to this, you are creating value for yourself. You're creating wealth for yourself. So at some point, I don't know where how big your audience is, you have sponsors, and then you can leverage this to have a conference if you want or to become a speaker at an event and convert that into capital. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. So I talk to my designers, right? They look at designs all the time. And they're collecting images from Pinterest, from Behance, all that kind of stuff. And I say to them, wouldn't it be more valuable for you to write an article or produce a piece of content that documents some of the cool trends that you're spotting? Like here's a collection of images that seem to be hinting at a particular design style or movement. Here's my breakdown. Here's why I like this. Here's what you have to look out for. And now I will show you how to make it too. And put that out there as a piece of content. So everybody that's listening to this that is a creative person in any aspect, think about how you can convert your knowledge and your experience into something that can be shared with many people, not just one. That's how you create wealth. Yeah, and I think if you look at um, if you look at people that are the most wealthy, right? Or or success is obviously a, a, a subjective measurement, right? Um, yeah. But but in terms of wealth, their time is extremely valuable. I mean, so there was a guy who, and this this is no one would know who this is, but this is a a, a colleague of mine in the Lexington area who was a tech, technology professional, not into anything super famous, more B two B stuff, but. Um, he was always like being extremely uh, uh, protective of his time to the point where so many things in his life were outsourced. It was like, I'm not going to mow my own yard, right? Like it's going to take me a long time to do that. And then there's like this weird sort of old school mentality where you should t- take care of your, like cut your own grass, <laughs> right? Or whatever. And he's I like- I think I know who you're talking about. You're uh, talking about Mike Janda? No, no, no. But oh, but this okay. but this uh but th- that that sort of he he could have very well got that from from this particular person. I mean, it's just yeah. kind of the mentality where out so uh, I guess even like the 4-hour work week kind of describes mm-hmm. a little bit of that where you just sort of uh you know, pay more attention to your time. I even I I've told people before, so there's a lot of people that listen to this that work for in-house for a team as like a designer, like mm-hmm. uh, a professional sports team or college team or whatever. And and then they'll do freelance at night. And so my thinking is that, okay, well, if you're, if you have a family and you're freelancing at night, then I would argue that that time that you're spending away from your family is actually more valuable <laughs> than what you're probably charging because you're taking away from something that's extremely important um, to do freelance work, right? So it's almost like you should triple <laughs> what you're charging because this is not during your work day. This is your personal time that you're giving them. Yeah. Well, if you look at it like this, I think about this, uh, people who are nannies, 
if they have their own kids and they go out and become a nanny for somebody else, they have to bring somebody else to be a nanny to their own kids. And that does seem a little insane. So unless you're able to charge significantly more, significantly more by a, a factor of two or three X, then you're better off just staying home with your kids and spending your time and money that way because at least then they have their parent. Right. And that's critical. So the idea is that you're exchanging your time for something of value. And I have a very basic principle that if you if you can follow, then you'll start to make more money, you'll create more wealth for yourself, and you'll create opportunities for other people. If you can get paid a certain amount of money and pay somebody else a portion less than that, you should do it. Right. This is how companies are built. This is how our society moves forward. So if you get paid $100 and you can afford to pay somebody else 40 or 50 bucks to do it, you should have them do it. Then you can use that time to go out and hustle and get more business. So somebody's going to be sitting there thinking, well, now you're a manager and I didn't go to management school. I'm not a telephone designer. I don't phone it in, brother. That is wrong. Well, then it's okay. Then you could be the maker. But the people who are going to move far and fast are going to be the ones who understand the, the dy- dynamic of business. This is the arbitrage thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where you buy low and you sell high. The higher you can sell it, the higher quality of people you can hire, and your firm's work grows and gets much, much better. Now, I'll give you a case in point to make this a little concrete. There are lots of things that we produce as a motion design studio that I have no idea how it's done. If I had followed the recipe of I must do it, I must be the expert at it, the company would grow very, very slowly. Uh-huh. There's crazy things that we do with motion capture or 3D rendering that I was like, wow, guys, that's, that's really good. How do we do that? Well, we just brought in the best guy who does that. Well, the character animation was amazing. How do we do that? Well, we brought the best guy in to do that too. Uh-huh. And then what my, my clients understand is when they pay us to do a job, they're not paying us to do it. They're paying us, A, so that they don't stay up at night worrying if we're going to do the project or not. They pay us because we have the track record of always figuring things out. They pay us because we come in with the ideas, the words, not the making, that they can't get anywhere else. And then we know how to marshal the resources to build either a a staff or freelance team to get the work done. And we can do it on time and on budget. That's what they pay us for. This is the entrepreneurial mindset. And if you want to be one, this is something you're going to have to come to grips with. Right. Actually, I think this leads pretty well into um, a conversation about asking questions and determining value. Um, so you, you, there was a, a talk, I th- one of your recent videos was kind of about uh, had, Ma- had Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and that type of thing in terms of asking questions. There's a lot of designers that work in this industry, and and I'm always pushing these people to try to think outside the box and to do better for themselves because the sports industry is really bad about paying designers in a, basically pennies and t- and season tickets. <laughs> um, so you know you go and work. Uh, you know, work so hard and give away mm-hmm. so many of your hours and you're there, you know, for 40 hours during the normal work week and then you have to be at the game at night to take photos or to do whatever. And you and mm-hmm. typically it's these low salaries, but there's like this weird per- perceived sexiness to it in terms that you get to be on the court with Kobe, right? Or whatever. Um, right. Which is cool, but I think most people really know that like you don't actually know Kobe, and there's no, there's really not a whole lot of value <laughs> in that. <laughs> um, but, 
But actually there's a quote from, uh, and so when I started this podcast, I was actually really worried that I would be building other people's brands and not my own. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I'm a lot of times when I ask questions, I know the answers to the questions because I've done my research or we have a common uh, person that we follow that I know that that person sort of subscribes to similar theories. Um, uh, but I was worried that I would basically be building other people's brands and not my own. And I would almost be uh, almost be perceived as like the dumb guy that doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Right. But what I mm-hmm. found over time is that actually your intelligence is sort of uh, proved by the types of questions that you ask, right? And so Einstein actually has a, there's a quote from Einstein where he says, uh, quote, to raise new questions, new possibilities, to regard old problems from a new angle requires creative imagination and marks real advance in science, right? So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I sort of hold that as like a mantra for my show, right? Um, so my question for you is how can designers who maybe they're working in house or whatever, and they're trying to kind of determine a better value for themselves. How can we all ask better and more high value questions to prove that, Hey, we are actually smarter than just this maker. Yeah. Mm. And this requires a lot of reading, I think, and, and maybe taking some courses. And I was very fortunate that I had an incredible instructor who taught me philosophy and how to kind of channel my thinking into a logical argument. A lot of us are too quick to prescribe solutions and to spend too little time diagnosing the problem. This is one of those things where I can do lots of things, but you got to help point me in the right direction. Like, are we going north, south, east, or west? Like, that's all I really need. I don't need a roadmap or a blueprint as to how to get there. And so how do you know that you're moving in the right direction? Well, let me tell you the symptoms of not moving in the right direction when you get a lot of revisions and notes to the point in which the client becomes very prescriptive and they want to sit next to you. And this is probably making a lot of your audience cringe right now because at one point in time, if you worked long enough, you've had that experience or you've seen it. And it's a horrible thing. Now you're literally just hands moving the mouse. You're a mouse jockey. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, a little redder. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, a little bit smaller. Right, no, a little bit bigger. Right there. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. And then you look at that thing like, what are we doing? You're totally detached and disconnected from the entire creative process. All the creative parts of your brain are shutting down because you're thinking, what a horrible situation I got in. I'm, I'm working next to a pixel effort. Mm-hmm. That's the symptoms. Or you think it's done, and then you get what we call late cycle revisions, meaning it's not done. The deadline keeps moving, and now you're underwater on the project. You might as well be paying the client to do the work at this point because now you're working for less than minimum wage. That's a big problem. Right. How do we avoid this? Because this is a real pain point, right? Are you guys feeling that pain? Yeah. Okay, so here's how we do. We got to rewind the tape and go back to the beginning. Before we take off, and it's called shiny object syndrome. Like you see something, you're a squirrel, and you just go for it. Don't do that. This is where you have to spend time diagnosing. What is it that we're doing? And so then you have to come up with lots of why questions. You have to really get to the need versus the want. What the clients will often do is because they're busy professionals, they don't have a lot of time to explain things to you. Plus, they don't have the visual vocabulary to carefully articulate what it is that they want. So what do they do? They give you some shorthand and then they just dump all this information on you. So what you have to do is you have to ask them, 
what is driving this? What is the true motivation of why you're even doing this? Because as far as I'm concerned, something must be broken. Otherwise, why do you need to fix it? So this begins the whole process of digging deeper to find the root of the problem. We often say that in Western medicine, doctors are quick to prescribe things to treat the symptom and not the problem. Have a headache, take two aspirin. I have pain in my knee. Here's a painkiller. But it could be that one of your legs is longer than the other and it's putting undue pressure on one of your legs. It could be you have a headache because there is fungus or mold in your house. Or for whatever reason now, you become much more sensitive to bright light. So giving somebody an aspirin only solves the problem temporarily. It doesn't create a lot of value for you or your client because you got to keep taking that same medicine. It's not going to solve the problem. So when a client comes to you and says, I need a new website, instead of asking what's your favorite colors, what what websites inspire you, and doing all the design-based questions, just stop and ask them, why do you feel like you need a new website? Let's talk about that. They might say something like, we're getting a very high bounce rate. We're not getting enough traffic to our site. Conversion is really low compared to what industry standards are. People often complain about it being confusing. People often buy the wrong product or they, they need other kinds of recommended products, but we don't know how to do that. So now I start to get into understanding what the true motivation is. So if they need to solve a mechanics problem, like the site needs to be optimized with SEO, let's go do that versus reskating the site because we want to make it in our own image. That's not going to solve their problem. When you start to do this, you become a much more valuable consultant versus a lower value order taker. Like you want fries with that? How big should I make the logo? You like red? What what shade of red do you want? Okay, thank you. That's the fundamental flip that people need to make if they want to be paid more to be valued for their ideas and for their thinking is to actually be doing that work. So that's interesting. Um, there's You actually posted a video recently, and this is something we see in the sports industry a lot about the F1 rebrand positioning by Wyden mm-hmm. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned in that that if we, it's almost like designers are self-sabotaging because you mentioned in that that if we are going to, we're going to essentially lose the war and be competing for table scraps if we just get so wrapped up in aesthetics alone. Right? That's and right. Designers are really bad about that. We Every time a new sports brand identity comes out, especially, <laughs> it's like the designers are the ones who are, the, who are commenting, this is awful, and then they redesign it 10 times on Dribble, but they have no idea that there was a strategy <laughs> and a bureaucracy right. involved. And I love that video. I, show, I shared that with my community because it was essentially like, this is what a lot of sports designers... I designed an identity for a, a Division three. uh NCAA Division three college, right? And the alumni, I mean, it was just, it was brutal. I mean, you just get like attacked. <laughs> so I can't even imagine something like F1, which is massive, right? But there's massive, a strategy involved. Multinational, yes. There's a strategy involved. So here's the thing, is that when we get caught up in the aesthetics, then we get called in to just talk about aesthetics and that's okay. And a lot of times I just think, honestly, a lot of the people who have such a strong visceral reaction are A, feeling nostalgic because we can't move on with the new. We have to stay with the old and it has some kind of personal emotional attachment. And I'm not discrediting that, but that's what it needs to be addressed. Like I'm not ready for change right now and that's okay. 
just to say that versus saying it sucks. The second problem, and I think this is the bigger problem, is this, is that there are a lot of uninformed amateurs out there. It was much clearer, clearly demonstrated in the Google logo when that G, and all these designers started saying, like, here, I fixed it. I made it perfect. Right. All they did to me was to demonstrate how little they know about design. Because every, every monkey and every fool can align things to a grid and make it exactly mathematically the same. Mm-hmm. It takes an artist to be able to understand, and, and not an artist, at least just an informed person, to look at a mark and say, well, optically, it doesn't look right. Right. Something's wrong. The G's too high. It doesn't feel like it completes a circle. So we have to then make optical adjustments and not mathematical adjustments. Now, if you'd gone to a good design school, your teacher would have taught you how to look and see, and you would have learned a little bit about art history and architecture too, that the Greeks had known about this 2,000 years ago when they designed their architecture, that if you made everything perfectly straight from a distance, it looked crooked, Mm -hmm. it looked curved, it looked bowed. So then they would have to make optical adjustments for these things. And so basically what we're doing in this internet culture, it becomes an echo chamber of uninformed, ignorant designers. That's the problem. That's how I see it. When they, they make these comments, I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You, yeah. You're saying you're better, more informed than the entire creative team behind this gigantic multi-million dollar company. Really? Right. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating because it's like, the, I feel like the industry kind of moves forward a little bit and then something will happen like this and then it sort of just goes backwards because the, these very vocal people get on Twitter and just start attacking everything. And it's always from a surface level. And I would even say like, as far as like the F1 logo is concerned, I mean, to me, the F1 logo is kind of like the NBA logo or MLB logo. It's like more B2B. Like the NBA logo isn't for you. It's like for the teams and the owners, right? And then right. maybe the team logo is for you, right? So it's like a completely different strategy for, for each each thing. Right. It is. And they're solving different business problems. And we, what we need to do, and I, I, and I was just really trying to make this point, and maybe I didn't say it very clearly because I was just a little angry, <laughs> was this, was that once you learn about what the creative brief is from your client, the owners of F1, the marketers, the chief marketing officer, then tell me if it sucks. Tell me if it didn't solve the problem they were asked to solve. So all this stuff was just a knee-jerk reaction. I saw it, I don't like it. And so it just becomes a world of opinions. And, and I, I put it this tweet, I said, you know the word jerk is in knee-jerk? So when you have a knee-jerk reaction, that's how you behave to me. Right. Think about it. Take a moment to process what's going on. Try to understand there are a lot more variables at play here and look at it through those lens. Because I'm pretty sure most of the people who hate it who, who haven't taken a time any time to look into it, they're not getting paid $500 to design a logo. They're getting paid less than that. Right. It's just the internet warriors. Everybody's an expert, right? Right. I'm probably making a lot of friends right now, but that's all right. <laughs> no, I, this is, these are the types of conversations that I tend to have. So if people listen to the show, then they probably, because a lot they're of times, I'll, yeah, I mean, I'll interview people that, that have done this stuff, right? And we talk and we go behind the scenes like, well, this is, you know, they were like, 20 people involved and alumni and you, you kind of do what you can, but ultimately as with anything at the end of the day, they're paying for it. Right. So you sort of like have to abide or just quit and say no to millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was sitting on the, the board of the AIG and I forget the person's name, so I'm not going to say it. So I mess it up, but he's an architect mm-hmm. and he says, look, here's the thing. I buy a lot of artwork. I really do. I, I love artwork. 
and I, I leave it all around my house. There's not enough walls in my house for the artwork that I buy. But I never presume to work on a client's project and impose upon them my taste in art. Like I'm going to hang this piece of art in your room. Mm-hmm. It is about what the clients need and want. It's their problem. It's something that they live with. Right. So you got a pretty big ego to say that it's about what you think. Right. Yeah, that's well you're put, not, man. I'm you're gonna, not taking into consideration all these other people. Wow. wow. When did you become the rock star designer that nobody said you were? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's good stuff. Uh, so, so sort of kind of coming towards the end here, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the future. I think that my audience would benefit from that. Um, but also uh, on your last, I, I'm, I just have a soft spot in my heart for design or designers or just any creative person that takes, um, that sort of breaks free of the client model only, right? Because it seems mm-hmm. like most most very successful people have multiple streams of revenue. So designers that create products, right? Like your your colleague from Farm Design, who was on your recent one, uh, yes. one of your recent shows, right? That created his the that toy or whatever it was that he created, the Mugo toy. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, there's a lot of startups created by designers. Um, so, uh, and then this is this is something f- for you and and your company because I know that the, I noticed there's crossover between I guess your employees. Um, uh, moving over some and helping with production and that right. type of thing for, for the future. So tell us right. a little bit about the future, uh, about maybe the mentality of being a, a creative that wanted to start something that wasn't just solely dedicated to client work, but something you could kind of sell um, or, or creating a product essentially. Right. So there's a couple of things here. If, if you look into the science of happiness, there are four main pillars and three of them are very important to us. And the fourth one we'll talk about in a second. So one is perception of control, that you have control over your own destiny, a sense of autonomy. If you ask all millennials, what do you want? They, they want to have a sense of autonomy. They don't want to be told what to do minute by minute. That's the old model that worked in the kind of industrial age. The next thing they want is perceived progress. If you do something over and over and over again and you make no progress, it will drive you insane. Actually, that's a definition of insanity, to do something repeatedly and expect a right. different result. <laughs> the other is to belong to a community, to not feel alone. So when you're part of a community, you feel really good. You feel connected to other people. And the last one is a belief in a power greater than you. It can be God, it could be spiritual, it could be your parents, it doesn't really matter. To know that there's something else that you can lean on. So these four factors really determine how happy you are. So when we're working in the service business, that's what we're talking about. Somebody hires us, pays us to do something. We give them great customer service. And at the end of the day, they get a product, an artifact of that service. It served us well for a long time. But there's still some kind of master at the end of the day saying yay or nay, live or die, move forward or rejected. And after doing that for so many decades now, I get tired of it. Now, we're getting paid more to do the thinking stuff, so it feels like we're making progress, and that we feel like we have more control because now we're working with the brand strategy ourselves and not inheriting that from somebody else. But at the end of the day, there's still a person writing that ticket. So if you want more business, you can't just manifest it. You can't just sit there and design a marketing campaign to bring in new clients. I mean, I I know there are Google AdWord campaigns that you can run, but I don't mean it like that. Mm -hmm. You have no control over supply and demand and the, and the production chain. Well, now the future was created 
mostly for me just to share information because I'm a big believer in education that it should be for all people, not just for some people. And that's how we'll move forward as a society. I now create videos and some of them are behind a paywall to help us pay for a team that is growing by the minute. Mm -hmm. Now we're moving into a different kind of business. Now we're into the content business and our business is infinitely scalable. We have products that we create. We have things that we, we can um, turn over to our customers that we can do while we're sleeping. The entire process is automated. And this is a pretty cool thing. When you make something one time and you can sell it repeatedly, that's really cool. That's also called intellectual property. So when, when you work for a client, you're essentially only getting paid while you work. Nobody pays you while you sleep. Right. Nobody pays you while you're on vacation. So in the time that you and I are on this call, orders are coming in, they're being processed, and they're being delivered digitally. This is a fascinating business, and there's, they could not be more different. So I sit down with Ben Burns, who's our digital director. He's essentially running the business for me mm-hmm. while I do all the content stuff, right? And we sit down, and we look at the numbers, and we can see how it's tracked over the last four years. We can see how January has measured up for four years. So we can see that we're growing 300% year-to-date, year over year. And it's pretty incredible because we were looking to close January right now, right? Mm -hmm. So we know, are we on track to doing three times what we did last year in terms of revenue? So all we have to do is compare January to January. And we can say like, we need to either make more product, do a better job of selling the product, or run a marketing campaign or something else like that to hit our numbers. I love the predictability. I love the scalability. And it allows me and people like you who are making content to be able to capitalize on our ideas. We're converting our knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm. That's how our wealth is going to be created. So in a very short amount of time, the future will be worth, in, in theoretical and in a very real sense, than blind was. So it took blind 22 years to get here. I believe the future will surpass blind in the buildings in five years. Wow. I mean, five years total, not five years from now. Mm-hmm. So just to give you a kind of reference point here, because I'll talk about yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So on average, every single year, we do about $4 million. Some years we do much better, but for the most part, it's about $4 million. We need to make $4 million because that's how much overhead and payroll I've got to deal with. Mm-hmm. The future last year did $540,000 in sales, mm-hmm. but we are growing at a 300% growth rate. So this year, conservatively speaking, we should hit a million, a million and a half. The following year, it would be 5.5 or 4.5 million. Wow. So you can see yeah. that in a very short period of time, and it's very predictable, the business model. And we're not even taking into consideration that there's this accelerated exponential growth mm-hmm. that we can do with the future and that we can't do with blind. So if we get a ton of work for blind, I can't hire enough people. I have to have more computers and more desk space and more IT people so the expenses skyrocket. Right. As opposed to a thousand new customers come in and want to buy the topography course or the logo design course that has almost no impact on my team. Right. Right. So you that's put where in the we're work going. up front and then you're that's you, right. you sell it. Yeah. So this is now tapping into what many people will consider the passive income business model. Or if you write a book, you create a video, you create a tool, a plugin, an app, whatever it is that you make. As long as it's digital, it's very scalable. Mm-hmm. The the production costs do not increase 
with the volume of business that you're doing. So every day I go out, I produce videos, I go and speak at functions and events. I try to build and coalesce a community around this idea that creative people can and should thrive in the 21st century in the creative economy. And they need to learn new skills. They need to think about things differently than the way they had been taught. They have to reprogram and reboot the operating system of their brain. Because the truth is, they've been lied to all their lives. And the sad part is, the lie mostly is perpetuated by themselves. Mm -hmm. That's great, man. Well, I think uh, this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, I I know you're a busy guy. And uh, for for those of you listening, you can actually check out the future. uh, And I hope that you do so. Like I said, there's a lot of things that I talk about here that really align with with what Chris has going on over there. So I think it, it, would, it would make sense for you to go check that out. Chris, uh, while we wrap up, why don't you give us uh, where people can find you online and follow you or if they have questions, that type of thing. Sure. We try to make it as easy for you to find us as possible. So the main site is The Future, F-U-T-U-R, there's no E at then, thefuture.com, go there. You can also look at our courses at academy.thefuture.com. You can find us all on social media. I'm at the Chris Doe, and Doe is spelled D-O. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all over the place. And on social media, we're at the future is here. Very cool. Well, Chris, thanks again for taking time to come aboard. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. It was a real pleasure. Now, I do want to say this. If your audience isn't completely 100% offended by everything I said, <laughs> go check us out because there's a chance I'll say something to offend you later. So uh, they, won't, they won't be. If they're not offended by some <laughs> of the things I've said, they should be okay. That's good. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, man. My gosh. All right. Cool. My next guest is going to be Tim Tatter. Tim is an advertising photographer and retoucher from Southern California, specializing in creating dramatic photographs of people, sports, action, and concepts by combining location and lighting effects to create unique images. You can follow him on Instagram at Tim Tatter, T-A-D-D-E-R. Big thanks again to Chris Doe for taking time to come aboard the podcast. I highly recommend, as he mentioned, checking out thefuture.com and subscribing to their YouTube videos as the content there is not only a very quality education on design, but specifically entrepreneurship in the creative discipline. You could follow him on Twitter at the Chris Doe and at the future, and that's future with no E. If you're interested in hearing more Makers of Sport episodes, head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. To support this ad-free podcast, you can join the paid member community at makersofsport.com slash community, where you'll have access to additional content such as private Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly video hangouts, as well as interact with, share feedback, and build relationships with like-minded professionals in the live chat. All community content is recorded and available anytime you join, including the private Q&As and the Hangouts. So when you join, they will be there on the website in your account. In addition, community members get an opportunity to take part in the high school project, which is a pro bono branding project we are taking part in for underfunded high school athletic programs around the U.S. More on that particular initiative can be found in episode 75 called Donating Your Creativity. So if you get value from the content from this podcast or its other information sharing outlets such as social media, 
then I ask that you please consider supporting the show fiscally by voting with your hard-earned dollars and joining the community. In exchange for that fiscal support, there will always be ever-changing premium content and a network of like-minded and professional business-savvy creatives in the sports industry ready for you to interact with. It also includes access to myself for consulting advice and one-on-one meetups. My plan is to always keep this podcast sponsor-free, which means it's legitimately free and never sells sponsors or makes you the product. Anything that sells you sponsors or ads makes you the product. So nothing is technically free in this internet world. Uh, The only way the show does make money, as mentioned, is through the community. So if you would like to support the show, then please do that by joining the community. And in exchange, you get additional benefits. If you can't support the show fiscally at this time, you can support the podcast by going to makersofsport.com slash email, entering your email address, and staying in touch with the future happenings of the podcast there. Additionally, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, hit the five star and write about your positive experience with the show. I read every single review and appreciate any feedback that I'm given, whether that's through email, through Twitter, uh, direct messages or Instagram, but especially those reviews on iTunes are very important and they help other people based on the algorithms of Apple podcasts to discover this show and to glean something from the content just like you may be doing yourself. So to reiterate, those of you that don't or can't support the show fiscally, all support matters. If you've gotten value, then please rate the podcast so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. I'll accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you happen to be listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on all social media, including Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. Thank you.